Famous unsolved murders get a lot of attention, even years after the crime occurred. Think about how often you still see media articles on the cases of John Benet Ramsey, the Zodiac Killer, or the Black Dahlia. In his book, A Long Walk Home, award-winning journalist Joe Strupp outlines the case of 17-year-old Carol Ann Farino in a small town just 10 miles away from New York City. I'm so glad that you've joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Let's tackle another story from the world of true crime, and then we'll see what spiritual and safety tips we can pull out of it. I believe that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because we're going to talk about a practical way to do just that. This is Season 3, Episode 47. After we investigate today's book, we'll be joined by my guest, Wendy Castaneda. She's going to share her own journey as someone who lost a sister to a violent murder. Imagine your teenage daughter or son or a nephew or niece or just someone that you love that has a part-time job in a small and seemingly safe community. They walk home after their shift, day after day with no trouble, until the one time that they don't make it home. That's the story of Carol Ann Farino. She was a senior at Columbia High School and worked at Milt's Cup and Saucer in downtown Maplewood Village, New Jersey. On November 3rd, 1966, she left her job around 7.30 in the evening. When 8.30 rolled around and she still wasn't home, her mother Anne began to worry. If Carol had stopped to run an errand or talk to a friend, Anne knew that she would have called so as not to worry anyone. Carol's father worked a job that had him up very early in the mornings, so he was already asleep that night. Carol's younger sister, Cynthia, was sent upstairs to wake him. He searched the town's teen hangouts while Anne called anyone that she thought might possibly know where Carol was. But no one knew a thing. After a couple of hours of searching, Frank headed to the police station. When he got there, he saw a familiar dark blue coat draped over a chair. It was Carol's. Two hours earlier, and less than an hour after she'd last been seen, Carol's lifeless body had been found under a large tree in a neighborhood driveway. She'd been strangled. In an instant, her parents' world had been turned upside down, and so had her 11-year-old sisters. As her parents withdrew into their grief, Cynthia should have had a counselor or someone to help her with the issues that she was suddenly facing. She didn't get any help at all. She simply became the girl whose sister was murdered. The police had found very little evidence and developed no suspects. Seemingly out of desperation, some officers fixated on Carol's father as a possible suspect. Thanksgiving was coming up, and one kind neighbor had them over so that they didn't have the pressure of preparing for their own holiday. No one invited them for Christmas, and they didn't do anything on their own. That's my first tip this week for being a person of impact. Include people you know who are suffering in your celebrations. They're probably not going to ask. They feel like they might be kind of a damper on the situation. But they need to be around people. They need to know that somebody cares. Years passed, and Carol's family was still reeling. When Cynthia got married, she wanted to do something to honor Carol's memory. Her parents refused to allow it. As time continued to pass, different men's names came up as potential suspects. But as one classmate of Carol's who would go on to become a police officer noted, one suspect in particular had ties to a local church whose tight-knit community might have blocked efforts to fully investigate him. Even as this book's author, journalist Joe Strupp, 
tried to access records from Carol's case under public record requests, he ran into bureaucratic brick walls. Personally, I've seen how hard accessing supposedly open public records can be in several of the cases I worked on. I had to make an appointment to view some, quote, public records, and was actually told that I would be limited to one hour. When I asked, can I make another appointment since no one else is waiting to use the machines that I'm using or view the material I'm using, I was refused. In Carol's case, police said they couldn't release information on an open and active case. But let's be real. How active could their investigation be after 50 years? Now, thankfully for other families, earlier this year, a new federal law called the Homicide Victims' Families' Rights Act went into effect. It gives family members of cold case victims a way to officially request federal investigators review their case with the latest available technology. And I do think that the most important part of this new law is that it specifically prohibits previous investigators from leading any new investigation of the case. Now, hear my heart. That is not because I think that there is a cover-up behind every case. But we all have our blind spots, and nobody wants to be proven wrong. And so, investigators that haven't been able to get anywhere, it's time to let someone with fresh eyes take a look. It's not about your pride. It's about the family's. As of the writing of this book, Carol's case is still officially unsolved, and the most likely suspects are all dead. If you want to learn more about what might have gone wrong in her case and see why officials closed ranks when Joe Strupp was writing this book, make sure you grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes. In just a moment, I'm going to talk to Wendy Castaneda. She, too, had a sister murdered when she was young. Thankfully, her story has turned out a little bit differently from Cynthia Farino's. Stick around and find out how in just a minute. I hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving this week if you're listening right after this episode has dropped. And as you gear up for your Christmas shopping, please check out the show notes. I've put a link to my new book, How to Kick Fear to the Curb, Private Investigator Approved Personal Safety Tips with Biblical Evidence to Fear Not. It would be a great gift for anyone that you want to give practical ways to stay safer physically and spiritually. Now let's check in with today's guest. Wendy, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you being willing to share such a personal story. Oh, thank you, Lori, for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. I'm honored to be your guest. Well, I love how we met. We were actually introduced by former L.A homicide cold case detective Jay Warner Wallace has been a guest on my show. So check out the show notes for a link to that one. So he introduced us because he played a very important role in your life when your sister Robin was murdered. Tell us about Robin and what she was like and and what it was like that day when you found out you'd lost her. Oh, Robin was just a really loving, super person. She had given her life to Christ about two years before before she was murdered. And I mean, her life changed. As a matter of fact, the day that I met Jim Wallace, he called me one morning and asked me if I would just share uh, a little bit about her because he he tries in every case to get to know his victim a little bit. And I said to him that she had given her life to Christ and that she was just a different person. And he said, I understand that. And in that moment, I knew that he was a Christian and we just had a kindred spirit. And it's really a sweet, my family and I, not just me, but my family and I, we feel like 
it was a divine appointment for us to meet Jim. But we didn't meet him until about 21-ish years after my sister was killed. Robin was murdered back in 1984. A lot of people ask, you know, when when I tell my story, they want to know a little bit about the details. So she was actually stabbed in the back twice. And the detectives tell us that either wound could have been fatal. So and she, they don't think she suffered any. So that was always a comfort to us. But the murder happened on the night of October 30th, 1984. But we didn't know about it until the 31st, which is Halloween. We had gone about our day and whatever. Robin wasn't at home because we had thought that she was going to be at a friend's house overnight on the 30th. And so when she never came home, we didn't worry about her because we thought she was gone. My eldest sister, Kim, she went to my parents' house. She wasn't living with us anymore, but she worked close by and she went to their house and found a note from Torrance PD that said that we needed to call them. And so, you know, she called them and they told her that she had been killed. And it just was the beginning of, you know, a new life for us. And it still has to affect you even to this day. And not just you, but, but your entire family. How do you think your life would be different? If Robin hadn't been murdered, gosh, that's such a hard thing to say because it's been my reality for so many years. I mean, actually, just this past Halloween, it was what 39, 38 years, you know, since she was killed. And so I was 16 when she was murdered. So more than two times my life with her, I've lived without her, you know? So it's hard to really say what I think it would be like. But I imagine, you know, I'd have a bigger family. She probably would have been married and had kids. And I'd probably have other nieces and nephews. And, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. It's just one of those unknowns. At the time, how did it affect, you know, your day-to-day life? Because I think sometimes people forget that the rest of us see what happened. We maybe attend a funeral and then we go on. But you're still living day to day with, like you said, a completely altered reality. Yeah. So for me, I mean, it was it was hugely impactful to my entire family. But for me personally, it changed every really every element probably of my life because Robin and I, I'm I'm the youngest of four. Robin was the second eldest and she and I shared a room together. And so all of a sudden I didn't have a roommate anymore. And she was really like my best friend. I mean, we called each other pal and I, you know, I just did everything with her. She was five and a half years older than, than I am. And so, you know, she was just a big protective sister for me. And it was a big loss. It was a really big loss for me. It's true. You say, you know, people come, they go to the funeral. And the the first weeks or so after the death, there's a lot of people around. But then all of a sudden, there's nobody. And so it was really hard. I went to school. And I, I remember that first day I went back. So I was a junior in high school when it happened. And I, my cousin came to the school. And she wanted to be sure that I got out of class before the whole school got let out. And so she came. And I, you know, I went with her. But when I went back, after that, it was so awkward for me. Nobody knew what to say. 
I mean, you don't, you, there's no handbook, especially not for teenagers about how to deal with murder. You know, there just isn't. It was hard. And really suddenly hard. you're the girl with the murdered sister. You're not Wendy in the way that you were before. It's true. It's really true. And in cases that I've worked, I've seen things like this blow families apart, and I've seen it draw them closer together. Mm-hmm. So what would you say, and I'm sure there was probably a little bit of both, depending on the on the time and, and how things were going, but how has your family dealt with it? Did you draw closer or or did you drift? I would say for the most part, we drew closer together. You know, we really just tried to keep loving each other and encouraging one another and be there. Everyone grieves differently. And that was really the hard part, especially in the beginning, because what my mom needed maybe wasn't what I needed. And what my dad needed wasn't what my mom needed. And, you know, it was just, it's complicated. Grief is complicated. And when you have five people that are all grieving, it's really hard to be there to support one another. But thankfully, we had a lot of extended family and friends who were just always there for us. My sister was killed on Halloween. And just this last Halloween, I had several friends post on my Facebook page. My sisters had their friends post on their pages, just remembering Robin. We didn't instigate it, but that just goes to show you that it impacted so many people, right? But so they were there back in the day and supported us and loved us. And, and to this day, they still, they still love us and remember the loss. You and your family have been through something else that most of us haven't and, and probably won't. And that's living through the trial. It took a lot mm-hmm. of years to get there. But, mm-hmm. you know, share with us how different trials are in real life versus what we see in the movies and on TV? Well, I'm sure that every trial is different, right? And thankfully for us, we had a really aggressive, assertive, maybe assertive is a better way to say it, prosecutor. He really was committed to finding the truth. We had a very compassionate judge. That part was good for us because we really knew that there was people in our corner. The trial itself was very, for me personally, and for my sisters as well, and my mom, it was very healing because we learned so much about the truth, right? So your podcast is called The Unlovely Truth. Yes. And it truly is unlovely to talk about murder and other kinds of crime, right? Mm -hmm. But truth is what frees us. Yes. And, you know, as a Christian, that's my personal belief, you know, that we have the truth in in Christ, but it carries over into life. And so learning so many details that we didn't know before the trial happened, I mean, the truth about what happened was really important. I'll give you just a really simple example. At the time that my sister was murdered, her coworker found her. Her name is Cheryl, and she had traded ships with my sister. Robin worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken when the crime happened. And Cheryl came to work one morning expecting to open the store, and she saw Robin's car in the parking lot. And then she went 
and found her and called the police and whatnot. She never went to my sister's funeral. And at the trial, we learned that the reason she didn't go was because she thought that we didn't want her there. But the truth was that we just felt compassion for her. Because how tragic that she would find, I mean, that would just be traumatizing for anyone. And yeah, we knew that she traded shifts with her. We never held it against her. We never thought that, you know, well, that should have been Cheryl that was murdered, not Robin. We just felt terrible for her that she would find her, you know, it was awful. We learned a lot about the details of the crime itself. Oh my goodness, there's so much to to say about it. The person that killed my sister, his name is William, and he still maintains his innocence. He says he didn't commit the crime. But after being at the trial for almost four weeks and seeing all the evidence, I am 100% convinced that he is guilty. At the trial, his ex-girlfriends testified. And what we learned is that he had confessed the crime to his girlfriend, but he threatened her and said, I'm not, you know, this happened, but if you tell anyone, I'm going to kill you. So she never said anything. And that, again, was something that we learned at the trial, but we couldn't hold it against her. If somebody told me, you know, I just killed someone, and then they say, and if you tell anyone, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to believe them. Sure. Right? Wouldn't you believe them? They've just proved they're capable of it. Right? You mentioned that the trial took four weeks. And I think maybe that's about, I think that's maybe something people don't stop and think about, mm-hmm. you know, the families, they're putting their lives on hold for four weeks to attend this mm-hmm. trial. And a lot of times there are delays. And so you might have a witness that needs to fly in and then the dog gets mm-hmm. delayed and then that messes right. up their schedule. And so, you know, they don't run as smoothly and just everything on time. And I think that can really re-traumatize a family. For sure. For sure it can. And there's so much, you see the crime scene photos. You, I mean, there's a lot of things that you see that are really difficult. And and for me, it was interesting because the trial started 23 days after I got married. And so then now I have this new person that came into my world and who I love dearly. But, you know, he and his family are like, I mean, even though they knew that to expect the trial and everything, they couldn't completely you know, appreciate or understand what that meant for us. But I mean, it really, I had to stop working. I tried to work, but after, I think it was after the first week, my boss actually said, you need to take a leave of absence Mm -hmm. because I was just too distracted. I wanted to be there. I wanted to hear every single word of testimony and, you know, all of that. It's a really important process, but it definitely is not like, it's not as simple as it looks on TV shows or in the movies or whatever. It's a long process. It's, you know, you get up and drive across town every day. My mom was really sick at the time and she was on oxygen and it was difficult for her to go, but it was really important for her to be there. So, and I talked about, you know, the judge showed compassion, but the courtroom was cold. He had a sleeping bag in his chambers and he brought it out every day. He brought it out and offered it to my mom so she could be warm. And I mean, you know, it's just those little things that you don't, you know, really think about. 
And then the other part that was really important for us was the the jury. I mean, the jury selection is a process in and of itself, right? But those people were so committed to finding the truth and making sure that if the defendant was guilty, that was the verdict to which they came. And ultimately, that is what happened. It's a real commitment. And there's just a lot of aspects that you don't think about until you're there walking it. And it continues beyond the conviction because then you have people appealing, filing different motions. Has William gone through all his appeals? Is he done? Or are you still having to deal with that? Yes. So he's gone through all his appeals and they were all denied. So when William killed my sister, he tried to rob the restaurant. And so it was a capital, what they call a capital offense. And he was, uh, they could have sought the death penalty, but they, they chose not to. So he was actually sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He has recently applied for clemency in the state of California. I personally don't think that he will be granted clemency. I mean, typically, governors or the president or whomever, you know, they, they grant that. It's to an inmate who has either been wrongly accused or has taken responsibility for their crime, has shown remorse, has maybe, you know, lived out most of their sentence. In his case, he was free for 23 years and he has never, you know, owned up to it. For me, and I mean, you ask about the trial and how it's important, right? So even though we were in contact with the detectives a lot before the trial, I still was a little bit skeptical when the trial started about, are they positive? Is, is he really the one that killed my sister? And it was actually the trial process and seeing all of the evidence and, and all of that that made me believe 100% he is a person that killed my sister and he needs to be accountable. I love that you used that word, accountable, because you and I spoke at length about your sister, about her case. And I know that you mentioned that there's really not what you would consider closure ever, but you can reach a level of accountability. Mm -hmm. And so has that helped you kind of, I don't want to say put it behind you because I don't think anybody really ever can, but has it helped you just cope with things on a day-to-day basis in, in a different way? There was a, a season in my life that was really difficult. I mean, honestly, I would say I was suicidal. That was probably early 2000s. And I was really struggling. I mean, I had been several years since my sister had been killed, but there was just a lot going on in my life. And in the mid-90s, my dad actually committed suicide. He shot himself with hunting rifle, 30-06. And I mean, he was really sick. And when it happened, my sisters and my mom and I, we, we all kind of understood that he just didn't want to be a burden to any of us, especially not to my mom. She and my dad lived at the house by themselves. We were all you know out of the house. But even though he was really sick, I believe I could speak for my sisters, my extended family, my mom. She's, you know, since passed away, but it was really the grief that killed him, you know, and it's hard. It's really hard to go on. Me, knowing the Lord is what has kept me going and knowing that 
my sister knew the Lord and that, you know, someday I'm going to be with her. It gives me hope. You know, the Bible talks about that we grieve with hope. And that's a hard thing to do because when we lose people, it's painful. And, you know, it's just, like I said earlier, it's complicated. It's messy. But I just think that at the end of the day, God has given me life. And I want to live my life in a way that honors him, in a way that honors my sister. To live in perpetual grief, I, I don't think that's what God has for me. Well, that's a beautiful so, message to share because I know there's people listening who are dealing with grief, different. I'll, I'll also put in the show notes a hotline number that you can call if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts because God loves you and he doesn't want you to be in pain, certainly, but he also wants you to live the life he's given you because you've got, you've got a lot of people that depend on you that you don't always know. Yeah, it's it's so true. We just have no idea how we impact other people's lives. And I mean, I'm not going to pretend that it's a rose garden and perfect. I mean, I miss my sister very much. You know, I think of her a lot, but I really believe that she would want me and the rest of my family to be enjoying life. Well, thank you again. Like I said, this is, I know, been a deeply personal thing to talk about and, and you're willing to because you want to help other people. I feel like I got to know Robin just a little bit. So thank you for that. Yeah. One thing I will say, this is a side note. And so I'm really grateful for the process. And like I said, there's, there's so much we learned in the trial, the truth and all that brought healing to so many people. And I just want to put it out there in case any of your listeners are interested. But Dateline actually did a program about my sister's life, about my family's life. And it aired back in 2011. Ironically, I like the filming ended hours before my mom passed away. The title of the show is called The Night Before Halloween. And I just put it out there. So like I said, in, in case anyone wants to listen, it gain a little bit deeper understanding of not just how the trial impacted me, but my entire family. One of the things that was really moving was, so it was Halloween, right? When my sister was killed. And so for 23 years, my mom never passed out Halloween candy at her house. It was just too painful. It was just too painful. And I mean, that's completely understandable, right? Yep. But once the trial happened and we went through the whole process and everything, and ironically, it was the, the trial was in September of that year. And William's sentencing was on the 28th of September. At some point during that season, my sister and my mom were talking. And my mom said to Kim, you know, maybe we need to get Halloween candy. And that sounds like a really small thing, but that was huge. That is it was amazing. Huge because for her, it meant there was just a little piece of that joy that could come back and give her life. And that really is my hope and prayer for anyone listening to this podcast is that even amidst of the despair, the trauma, all of that, we might be able to just hold on to that little bit of hope that we have in God. I love that. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I needed to hear that. I think we all did. So appreciate you so much, Wendy. Thank you for having me. 
For this week's Bible passage, I want us to look in Psalm 37, verses 7 through 10, and I'm reading from the Amplified Bible. I really like the way that it has rendered this passage. Be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him, and entrust yourself to him. Do not fret, whine, agonize because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and abandon wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who do evil will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. For yet a little while, and the wicked one will be gone forever. Though you look carefully where he used to be, he will not be found. I know we all have our own cold case issues. We've all had someone, and probably more than one someone, who has done us wrong. I also know that it's really hard not to complain or become sick with bitterness. But God calls us not to use anger or retaliation as ways to cope with this terrible waiting. God will deal with those who've wronged us. And working for justice is fine, as long as we don't fall into the trap of fighting evil with evil. No matter how much we want justice, or for what we think is right to come to pass, we have to ask God when it's right in His time. I think we all know someone who's been waiting a very long time for some sort of justice or at least for a resolution of a difficult part of their life. Very often, they've had support right at first, but it's faded over time. That can lead to a lot of bitterness and turmoil. They need someone, maybe you, to listen with compassion, but to also remind them of this passage of Scripture. We all need that friend who will step up sometimes and help us see the big picture of how God wants us to respond in difficult situations. It's not always easy, but it is a great way for you to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. I've put links in the show notes. I've just had so many amazing guests that I don't want you to miss a single bit of wisdom that they've shared with us. And I want to ask one thing. I need your help to grow and reach more people. And it's easy to give me a boost. Just share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, or you can give me a five-star rating with a nice review on Amazon Podcasts. I'd be so grateful if you could. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.